Deadwood Soundwell. Junction 13. That's just murder, isn't it? Total gridlock this morning. You're entering a cosmic void. Welcome to a Cosmic Void. I'm Biggs. I'm Jeremiah. And today we have a special guest from the Dippers podcast, an old friend of mine. You're not old. I mean, just like a friend from way back. <laughs> Lauren O'Neill. Hi. Hi. Dip. What is your history with this movie, Lauren? Well, actually, when it came out, I was not participating in rom-com culture in any way. <laughs> I was in my early 20s. It was not interesting to me. This would have been something I would have not spent time or money on. And I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, after having watched it now, and I think through the years, I'm definitely familiar and probably the way many of us are culturally. It uh, There's a couple tropes that have definitely been memed and parodied throughout the years. And like I said, like, I'm pretty sure it's somebody I know's favorite Christmas movie. So I've like walked into a room where it's playing a couple times. Yeah, that's a step beyond me. I was completely unaware of this movie until I'm going to say seven or eight years ago. Oh, and then I started to see the memes with the cue cards. And I used to have a, a co-host on a podcast, Zach Lakenbrook, and he made some joke about how when he watches The Walking Dead, he looks at it as a Love Actually reunion. And I was like, about whatever that is. And he's like, oh, it's great. There's a stalker in it. You would love it. Like, and I was like, what? <laughs> I would yeah. love that. <laughs> and then uh, I did not think about it again until uh, Jeremiah brought up doing a holiday block. And so we were kind of trying to figure out how we were going to put that together. We did our horror movie with Gremlins. We are now doing what you put as like the Hallmark sappy movie. And then I started to look at Hallmark sappy movies and they just don't exist online except for on Hallmark site or to pay a lot of money for. And so I'm trying to like whittle it down and figure out like what can we watch and what's worth watching. And then out of the blue, Jeremiah's like, I'm thinking about doing Love Actually. And I was like, great. Great. Because I was like, sure, I could find that easy, you know, and I've heard about it. So I'm like, okay, like, I know I'm not in for a great movie. When you said that, I just sort of looked for the online discourse really quick around this movie. Mm -hmm. Dude, people either really love this movie or really hate this movie. And I feel like there's no in between. It's like the early 2000s, just perfect trash rom-com. Like, it just has just so much shit in it. <laughs> 2000 tropes for sure. So much shit. I wrote down down before I started watching a quick like hit list of things I assumptions I had or things I thought I already knew about the movie four things I thought this movie title had a comma and now I don't know how to feel I, dude, same <laughs> absolutely the same right love 
actually, not love actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like so thrown off by that. Right? Two. I think this will be set in England. Circle gets the square. Mm-hmm. I, I was shocked it was a British thing. I had no idea. I had, <laughs> I had no idea no either. Idea. <laughs> See? We really overlap, don't we? Uh, three. I think this movie is about white people. Circle gets a mm-hmm. square. Okay. Yeah, same. Okay. Yeah. And four. I'm assuming it will focus on love, but not sure. Uh, that's <laughs> and nice. I'm still not, I'm still up in the air about that. Yeah, that's very 50-50 <laughs> for sure. I watched a thing before I watched the movie that explained how uh, this movie actually is about all the toxic sides of love and uh, not actually love. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, right? And I was like, shit. <laughs> I thought this was supposed to be a super sappy movie. <laughs> Maybe for some. Maybe for yeah, some. Yeah, true. It's interesting because when I watch it, there was parts where I could feel the subversion. Like, I did feel like there was some things they were talking to. But then they're also like, let's just throw some breasts in here. And, and like, let's do this. Oh, and that's, and, and that's like, what I mean no about way, the 2000s trash. Yeah, Fucking there was a. no way that stuff was subverting. And I do get the feeling that like when we see our storyline with the couple that cannot communicate with each other, there's nothing good about that relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can say it about other ones too, but that's the one that feels like you're really supposed to pull for them in that movie. And I'm like, man, I can't pull for these people. Like they haven't even had a conversation. You mean- you know? The guy that looks like Dear Evan Hansen and the woman who speaks Portuguese? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I think it's oh, Colin Firth. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. here's here's the crux of that, why that story doesn't work and why the whole movie doesn't work. Because he jumps around, the director and writer jumps around so goddamn much, you cannot get invested in any character or any storyline. So when comes time for us to not be able to understand the language they're speaking, but we all know what they're saying saying right love because of feelings you can't get invested because what is even going on why am i to like this man he seems pathetic why am i to like her i like her she seems very nice she seems to be doing good for herself why would she want to saddle herself with this pathetic man right yeah and nobody's explained anything to me about why i should invest myself in these characters so none of it works when it comes time for us to feel a feeling of love end of story it seems fake it is fake they can't even act it post 2000s like in my mind i grew up i guess i'm gonna do my little spiel on my history with this um my mom is a big bridget jones fan and a rom-com fan and i really wanted to kind of tap into that because there's this whole chunk of my life where my mom was heavily watching Hallmark rom-coms and fucking Hugh Jackman and Hugh Grant and all these guys and I'm like really invested in those stories and it's just one of the ones where I was like I kind of remember this movie I think this will be a good one this will be like a really good one I'll have like fond memories or something and I I started watching it and I was just kind of blown the fuck away about how uh just like like I said, man, it's just so fake. Like, uh, this story doesn't exist in 2021. You know what I mean? Period. Like, yeah, period. Like, there's so much wrong with this movie that it's almost comical that it exists. 
It's yep. pretty crazy. And yet again, they don't let you get invested enough in any of the characters to even come to a point where their tragedy is comic. None of them are funny. The jokes don't work. The only thing I really connected with with this movie is when the 50-year-old singer confesses his love for uh, his assistant. And he's like, I guess you're the only person I fucking love. And he's like, oh, it's been an honor. And I'm like, ah, that's kind of cute. <laughs> 50 my fucking ass, number one. Right? That dude's like 70 for sure. 50? And even if it's the early 2000s and he's doing the trogs, 50 my fucking ass. He looks like a shoe. <laughs> and he is so cruel to his manager. Cruel. I know. Why is every, why is there such weird fucking sizest shit in this movie? Everybody's fat phobic. To a point where it doesn't even make sense though, because they're not even fat or like no, chubby or anything. It's literally like, Thank you. it's so ridiculous. It's like. What I see in, you know, and the manager is a very sad alcoholic man who's trying to hold on to the one client he has left because this client is such a narcissistic asshole. He's abused his manager to the point where he's pushed everybody else away. Fuck, fuck. And then they don't even give you the whole music video, which would be the only part of this movie I would want to watch. <laughs> That's I think it does exist. Oh, I think it does exist somewhere. I, should, I didn't watch it. Yeah, but I do have to say before we launch into the synopsis of this movie <laughs> or into the plot points, this movie is like toxic. There's a lot wrong with it. It's still kind of entertaining. I don't know, like in right. a very bad for you way. That's like what I I'm watched saying. it and I it's was entertaining. Like, I texted everybody last night and said, This movie is insane, but I was laughing it as I texted it because I was like, I knew what they were going for. They weren't hitting the mark. I can't believe this is a Christmas classic in any oh. way and yet i found myself just laughing along with it not because i was supposed to i was laughing at the shit i was not supposed to laugh at you know sure. and uh, i see how people pull joy from this movie i still think it's irreprehensible like it's awful <laughs> it's definitely aimed towards that like 2000s paris hilton hot chick family vibe i don't even know why i threw the word family in there well, this movie no, is I like <laughs> you know what i mean like that that 2000s simple everyone life. Yeah, yeah simple life that's that's what you were going for yes. is those people yeah and yeah. um <sighs> nailed it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the simple life is charming. Nicole and Paris had a, a chemistry that is undeniable, and they were fucking entertaining. To take a phrase from another podcast, I love. I saw what you did. It it struggles to function because the characters are so limp and flaccid. Nobody gets it up in the whole goddamn movie, and you're left like, excuse. <laughs> And it struggles to know who it is. The movie doesn't know who it's rooting for. The director can't figure it out. He complained about the editing repeatedly in interviews from what I gleaned. Yeah. And that's great. You can blame the babysitter. You still made the kid. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. He should have just not jumbled the story and just made it one story, two story, three. Instead of mixing it all together, it just gets confusing. And then you're like, you look away for one second. It's like, oh, 
Oh, I missed that story. Now I don't know what this is. <laughs> I'm not making an excuse for the director at all because, like, I think at the core of this, it's broken. But I will stick up for the editing thing that he said a little bit in that he had decided at the zero hour to make the script a Christmas story. Damn. Because he just has his fondness for Christmas. Yeah. And so what happened was the studio rushed it because they were like, well, now this has to come out in the holidays. Right. And Which so, means like, November. yeah, he shot himself in the foot because where he normally would have had another three months to work on the editing which like this film I mean honestly objectively had to have been a monster to edit when you're like jumbling all these storylines and he clearly doesn't get it so like I believe him when he says like I didn't get time to edit but the stories are still broken and I'm assuming Jeremiah we're gonna go through this story by story because you usually go off of Wikipedia for the we're gonna we're gonna go through this Godfather style where we just do I don't even know why I just put this in the same category uh <laughs> it's not uh, in the same category one <laughs> other than one it's story, technically a movie <laughs> what we're gonna do is <laughs> technically <laughs> we're gonna do one story the next story how it should have been done and then we'll do the epilogue and how everyone connects to everyone because some for some reason that's a thing which doesn't really make sense either we'll see the one thing i want to say before we start th- this movie should have been so wild because it has such a big cast it has so many people that are like big or up and coming or would be big. It's crazy the how many people they got in this movie. Correct, for the time. But it's not an ensemble. They were put together because they were the big hot Brits of the time, not because they worked together really well. Or right. like, And they're like, oh, well, we can rely on Alan and Emma to carry it off. And they can't even fucking get it going. There's no story. There's no <laughs> conflict. Fuck! It's not a fucking story. <laughs> no, you're you're a hundred percent right. Like I have seen more chemistry between a fish and a cat. Like at my house, like I watched the cats looking at the goldfish bowl. More chemistry than Alan Rickman had with Emma Thompson in this movie. Like there should be some kind of sparks flying in that scene, and there is nothing. And they're good actors. It's just like, what do you do with a plot like that? Like, and that's their whole <laughs> arc. It's like let's just be very depressing. Let's just be very. Depressing depressing for this or like the liam neeson hold on that whole thing oh god Ugh. or what adult shows a child titanic when they're like fucking how old's that kid like my kid's age like nine seven i will say in its defense although i was not a parent at this point titanic biggest movie ever at the time you're talking about six years removed from when it came out i think Mm -hmm. is that is that right lauren is it like 97 it must have been 97 because it was playing on airplanes in 98 when i flew back and forth to italy and i refused to watch titanic because i'm a luddite like that if a lot of people like it i won't watch it i still haven't seen it uh, me neither (laughs) me neither and i well i saw part of it on the fucking plane because the beverage cart kept hitting me in the elbow anyway so 97 i'm guess i do think it's the one time period where that really could be a thing where it's like oh let's watch it that movie was inescapable in a way that love actually was not i mean granted it wound up getting its claws into us years later but like titanic was everywhere like i actively did not watch it and yet i was in so many rooms that it was playing you couldn't avoid it you know right Also, I think like, well, everybody knows what happens in the Titanic and it's not particularly Mm -hmm. violent, though it is sad and maybe tits. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard there's a 
a, like a sketching scene or something, right? Like, like I always hear like French James. Girls. Yeah, I always yeah. hear James Cameron did the the drawing, and I'm always like, well, that's creepy. Like <laughs> you have your director just staring at you for hours drawing you, and you're like. Uh, yeah gross (laughs) but i can see that from james cameron all right well let me get into the spoiler free premise and then i guess we've already been spoiling this sorry uh, actually (laughs) i mean i don't know why people listen to this if they don't want spoilers like we've made (laughs) it very clear we're spoiling everything the first episode (laughs) Uh, many people in their love lives intersect with speeches about airports delivered by the prime minister book ending the movie you're entering the void A voiceover by Hugh Grant opens, commenting that whenever he gets gloomy about the state of the world, thinks of the arrival area at Heathrow Airport, about the pure, uncomplicated love of friends, families welcoming their loved ones. Also, he points out the messages from the 9-11 victims were messages of love and not hate. Then we see love stories of many people. We need to start right here. Yes, we do. That had to have landed like a wet sack of flour in the United States. That's where they're horrible. just like, oh yeah, by the way, 9-11 in this like romantic comedy that has nothing <laughs> to do with it. No, remember, this is the thing people forget about that like three or four year period directly following 9-11. This wouldn't have been the Led Zeppelin you think it would have been. It would have been the, the semi-stirring reminder of what the world had just gone through. Because remember, America is the world. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> in terms of emotions and anyway literally i wrote down love actually is all around over because i knew at that point what was coming i knew absolute flaccid bullshit Uh, of all the irreprehensible things in this movie i think that one was the worst just because you're basically taking a bunch of people's pain Sure. And then you're like, yeah, we're just going to use that to talk about our happy-go-lucky romantic comedy. Christmas! Like, yeah. There you go, Jeremiah. <laughs> Christmas! Because that, that, that's the worst one because it's like real people, I think. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And, and they use it to kind of uh, be the underpinning of emotional reality. Like, we'll just let all these weird egomaniac men and women who are tacitly supporting them go off on this meaningless romp about love and you need to believe it because 9-11? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. It's so bad. You know, I, what, what's really sad about it to me, they have something in the airport thing. Really true. Like, I have three stepkids that constantly got on airplanes and went to their dads for like a year or two, would come back. And there's a very real thing when like somebody you love like goes on an airplane and comes back. It's just... All the anger, like resentment, any any of that stuff tends to drop out. And you have a moment in the airport. Like, that is true. Weirdly enough, Kevin Smith handles this better in Dogma. Because there's a part where, like, <laughs> Matt Damon's character is, like, hanging out at the airport. And he's like, I love it here. Like, this person's having an affair. Like, he's pointing out all these awful things. But he's like, it doesn't matter. They're getting off a plane. And they love each other. I love Kevin Smith. But also, like, I'm aware Kevin Smith is not high art either and like he fucking nailed it compared to this movie because this movie just is just like uh, 9-11 like it's terrible 
Well, because the example you gave, Kevin Smith says the quiet part loud. We're all humans. We're all very flawed. And though we love each other for these seven minutes, we're greeting each other again. The rest of the time, we don't treat each other with that genuine love, kindness, and compassion. Mm-hmm. We're really fucking around with each other a lot <laughs> of the time. And yet they make the choice in love, actually, to not acknowledge that. And when they do, it's like a forced manipulation to get you to feel a way about a character instead of showing you a developed character and letting you lead yourself there. Fuck, fuck. <laughs> so sorry. Yep. This fucking movie. I just. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad I brought you on, Lord. I'm so I'm, glad you came are on you, this. Are you? I'm sorry. I'd like no, to I, no, I 100% am. I love the energy. Like. <laughs> It's the morning, so I'm not having cocktails. So that is why this <laughs> is so spicy. <laughs> right. I'm drinking cocoa and wearing my Christmas sweats. <laughs> this is Billy Mac and Joe's whole arc with his longtime manager, Joe Greger, Fisher, uh, rock and roll legend, Billy Mac, Billy Nye, records a Christmas version of the Trog's Love is all around. Although believing the record is terrible, Mac promotes the release and hope it will become the Christmas number one single, which it does. He foregoes victory party hosted by Sir Elton John to celebrate Christmas with Joe, getting drunk and watching porn. Okay, there's a lot not said in that synopsis yeah. of yep. this story. The song is, it's not just that he believes it's terrible, it's that it's terrible, and I, I think we're led to believe that, it. and we hear it. <laughs> like, it's terrible. We hate it as a... It's Crimson and Clover for England, so you're like, get this fucking song off of my radio. I never want to hear it again. Yeah, 100%. So he hates it. He's like talking shit about it on every talk show that he goes on to. And he starts talking about how he'll go naked if it hits number one because there's some up-and-coming band, which they don't really show the band, but you can... You can draw the conclusion it's supposed to be like an in sync stand in, I think. <laughs> blue, Did it seem like that? Yeah. Yeah, blue, absolutely. It <laughs> it's some sort of absolutely scrummy boy band everybody's just going mad over. Yeah, and he's constantly, as you were alluding to earlier, the rock star is just talking shit about his manager. He's calling him fat. He's he's cruel. What I have written down is aging bitchy rocker a la Eric Clapton snore bore. Do we think Bill Nighy's character right now would be leading the charge to not get vaccinated? Just out of curiosity. (laughs) Absolutely, because it's his only bid at relevancy. How else are you going to promote that tour 2021? Nobody gives a fuck about Layla anymore. It's true. That's like it, though. That's literally like it, pretty much. He doesn't really even have like a real story. Well, they use him to underpin this (laughs) sentiment of like, we all know the holidays and love is trite, but actually we love each other. Right. I do have to ask you a question because I watched this and I kind of scratched my head and I wasn't sure. When he's saying I love you to the manager before they kind of go into the like the let's watch porn, did it seem like maybe he was gay? and was trying to like that is literally what i thought yeah that is literally what i thought it was so unclear because i wasn't sure if it was like a kind of toxic masculinity like we can never show each other
other's feelings, so we're acting weird about it, or what? I looked at it as Billy Mac has fucked his life away so much that the only person he has left to pretty much love and the only actual person in his life for him to love is his manager in that kind of way. But I don't know if, like, the ending was kind of like, I didn't know if they were a thing, <laughs> you know? I thought that it might have been a thing. I mean, they watched porn together. I don't know. I've never watched porn with you, Biggs, and we're pretty no. good friends. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't think that would be a thing, you know, <laughs> between friends. I feel like you're nailing something about how Billy Mac has fucked his life up so badly. The only bid he has at any sort of intimate love is mm-hmm. potentially this platonic relationship with his manager because he knows his manager will never leave him. And I'm air quoting that. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good point. This really also, I think there's something distressing going on with the alcohol and the drug use with this couple. I mean, at the end <laughs> of the day, this director is showing us a lot of very troubled relationships. And I think that by not including other relationships that may have mitigated how this comes off, what he's actually saying at the end of the day is love actually sucks. Yeah, it's love actually horrible. Love is pain. <laughs> love is your last choice. Love is some freaky stalker. Love is not grieving your dead <laughs> wife. Like, And that's such a rotten message. So this guy, in my final hour, I'm going back to the one person I know will always take me back. I left Sir Elton John's party for you. <laughs> and I think there's, again, no character development to tell us whether or not he would have made a pass at his manager or would have tried to fumble <laughs> around under the blanket with him while they're watching porn. <laughs> they're just sharing a blanket. I felt I felt like I took oh. a I took a note. Billy Mac, 50's my ass. Don't try to manipulate me with the Pointer Sisters again. Billy Mac is a shit ass cock face. He would be nowhere without his manager. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. So basically, like these sad, destitute alcoholics have done the one thing that's going to support them for the rest of their lives. And here they are together, (laughs) sad and alone. Right. It's yeah. almost horrible that he said that to him. Like that's almost the worst thing you can say to someone. It's like it's like he found a worse way to be like, Hey, I'm drunk and I think you're the only person I can be with. It's just so horrible what he says to him. And his manager embraces him. What <laughs> looks weird, right? They do uh, that they do that shot where he's like half heartedly hugging him and they show his reaction and he's like, I don't know what's happening here. That's cause he's a piece of shit. He's a piece of shit and he thinks but specifically, I mean, I didn't know if it was a gay scare thing. I didn't know if it was a I'm uncomfortable being platonic friends with somebody. Thing. Like, I didn't know what they were trying to go for in that scene. Because what they were trying to go for is that's their 2003 gay character for the times. Maybe. I don't feel like they could. the director could even flesh it out that far. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm so saying. Em- that's his like... <laughs> homosexual moment in the movie the problem is and i'm sure you can speak to this lauren they were not subtle with gay characters in 2003 like at all it was like abundantly obvious every time they had a gay character it was like Like it was all (laughs) officer spangler from reno 911 and oh dangle yeah yes (laughs) lieutenant 
Dangle. Lieutenant Dangle. Just goofing. Just new, new boot, boot goofing. goofing. And I love Thomas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I did go to a Halloween party where somebody dressed as Lieutenant Dangle and yes. had it down pat. It was kind of amazing. You need like the perfectly hairy thigh to pull that off. <laughs> you really did. did it. <laughs> he did it. I'm trying to think of what else I could say about why this whole storyline is in here besides it shows up everywhere and provides the impetus for the little boy to get the idea to start the band, right? Oh. I I think for a practical reason, it's because they're trying to intermix all the storylines. And I think this is an easy one where it's like, well, we're ending or beginning this scene in a living room so we can have the crossover by having him on a talk show. I just think it's like, literally a technical thing i don't think sure. like thematically it necessarily works uh, no <laughs> <laughs> nope. and then he strips nobody wants to see that no. <laughs> yeah such a confusing thing i wonder did they just let him go and expect improv genius and not get it and then have trouble editing <laughs> you know what i mean yeah that's just all him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because what else do you do with that character? We've still got like 25 plot lines to go here. <laughs> 72. This is my second favorite one, which I'm going by the worst. The worst are my favorite. So this is my second favorite worst one. Uh, Juliet, Peter, and Mark. Juliet, who's played by Kira Knightley, and Peter's Chiwetel Ejiofor. I probably fucked that up so bad. I am sorry. Wedding is videotaped by the best. Best man, Mark, Andrew Lincoln, uh, the dude from The Walking Dead that everyone hates. Slash oh, loves. can I do my impression um, of him on The Walking Dead really quick? Uh, Coral. Coral. <laughs> there you go. I almost expected that sign to say Carl. I think that when he shows the signs, this one said Carl. No. <laughs> Although the couple believes Mark dislikes Juliet, he is actually in love with her. When he evades her request to see the video he shot at the wedding, she shows up at his flat, insisting she wants to be friends. When she views the wedding video, she sees all the extreme close-ups of her. I'm glad they put extreme, because it is fucking like, whoa, dude, you like literally only shot my, yeah, my face. I'll, I'll be honest, man. You could get away with one of those. Thank you. Just one. And it would have read. Not just read, like you if you're making a wedding video, you could get away with one extreme close up oh, like see. that. Yes. But like you have to like then do one of the groom later. Or some like kids dancing or some old people or something that kind of ties into the love theme <laughs> or wedding. They show you at the wedding, he's creeping on her. He's not taking a wedding video, he's taking a personal video that he refuses to show the couple. And he immediately gets called out by yes. uh uh what's her face? Yes, Um, Laura Linney. And she's like, are you gay? She literally. (laughs) Okay, number one, Laura Linney, are you wearing a felt hat to a wedding? You (laughs) are wearing. This isn't 1987. (laughs) I wrote it down. You wore this in front of God, Laura Linney. It's one of my notes. If I can go to the practicality of this wedding, this drives me crazy as a musician. You are not pulling off that Beatles thing the way that they did it. Like. (laughs) That was crazy. You cannot hide a flute on your fucking lap and then just be ready to go at the bloop, 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 
like that ain't happening. You're not hiding an amplifier that like the guitar is hooked up to from that guy. Like you. you're not hiding any of that. You can't. What about the sound? The sound it would be so fucking off putting because there's flutes over here, guitar over yes. here, singer over here. It would be so fucking. I can't even imagine what that would sound like. It'd just be fucking horrible. And re- you're sitting next to me at a wedding with a trombone. Yeah. Right. I see you. We all see you. Everybody sees you. I hit this in my pants. Let's go a little bit further with the logic of this. So the trombone player uh, is like doing his little like one, one song. And then you know what he does? He has to empty that spit valve in the middle of a church. Like that's. No, this is not happening. No part of this is happening. No part of this is happening. I also want to talk briefly when she busts into his apartment with pastries demanding to see the tape that they all saw him creepily taking. Yeah. What if he was just in her face? Just literally, literally just- like super zooms. <laughs> He's just like sitting at the reception. They show him just like. <laughs> totally creeping out. Laura Linney saw it. Everybody assumes he's in love with his best friend. We don't know what Kira Knightley thinks. Are we to think she's the stupidest woman alive? I believe so. They send her over there with pastries so she can <laughs> befriend him because that's what needs to happen here. He's just such a cold fish and maybe he's in love with his best friend. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should have her go over there unaccompanied without calling, which even in the 2003. <laughs> We weren't really doing. Pastries or no. It's so horrible. He's supposed to be the John Cusack character, too. Oh. Kind of. That's what I took from it, because he's supposed to be the, you know, he's supposed to be that guy. And that's bullshit. That's bullshit, too. But let me just say, (laughs) it's on a VHS tape. He's edited all of this onto a VHS tape, which he's keeping in the middle of his DVDs, and she finds immediately... It is labeled whatever and fucking whatever's wedding. Why would you label your creepo extreme close-up tape that? Just label it the last unicorn or whatever else you call your porn. Why why is he making these? Why is anybody making these choices? And then he just leers behind her while she sits in a chair and watches a video of herself this whole fucking scene. Right. I would be like, holy fucking run. I would literally run out of there if someone showed me that video i'd be like i would call the cops <laughs> like maybe <laughs> like i would definitely at least consult my husband and be like did you see that fucking video he made of us on our wedding that's it. what the fuck <laughs> and lauren I, I wanted to piggyback off of something you said when you were talking about how uh kieran knightley being clueless like going in there <laughs> like if you're kieran knightley she strikes me as a very skinny like maybe like five foot two five foot three woman like very small woman oui. who's like very clearly a knockout has to know she's a knockout like you would think by that point you're already sick of all the male attention you get all the time like I would assume her default setting is just like everybody is gonna be creepy around me or be watching me or be wanting to hook up with me. Like, wouldn't that be your default setting if you were Kira Knightley? I will speak here as an ambassador for all women in a vacuum as a monolith. Uh hot women aren't always in a default mode of I'm so fucking hot, I shouldn't go here. Like that's no, that's not that's not what I mean. Like, maybe it's not a good idea to to go with this dude who's alone. Like, the idea that she has no idea that he likes her to me is like ridiculous because 
Well, I, I don't know. He's not putting off. I like you. He's putting off stare guy. Like he's. Yeah. Just I'm gonna stab you and kidnap around you. And staring. <laughs> they haven't developed him at all either. Again, character development would go a long way here. So we're just kind of like he's really sad. He's losing his friend, and it appears he's pining for this woman. Back to what you're asking, Alex. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily try to burst in on a man this way as my husband's best friend only because (laughs) like what a weird way to accost someone even if you're trying to catch them off guard and go through their tapes i would like hey want to grab a starbucks guy you know or hey want to meet at the bar i i don't even think that's appropriate i would i probably would have been like hey you should probably call mark no i mean try to go see the video like she can do whatever the fuck she wants and talk (laughs) to whoever the fuck she wants anytime we're not going down that path the path no i just mean that like she doesn't really fucking know him like that well call him up and get to know him have a beer is what i'm saying nobody does what kiara knightley does as a device to get her to find the tape in real life call him up and grab a beer and get to know him if you want to get to know him because that's the other thing she's saying we need to be friends because i'm married to your best friend right yeah yeah Yeah? i think so and I will say, and, and I can only speak for my marriage, I feel like that's not really a thing either. Like, I feel like oh. you kind of go into a marriage with your own friends and they remain your friends. And then you just try to be nice and cordial to people. And a friendship happens. Friendship happens. I think it's different for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I really do think it's different for everybody. But I think in this situation, it's so clearly a device and it moves so fast. It feels disgusting for everybody you know like really creepy and gross because it it feels like oh the next day she shows up how's the honeymoon i got great fuck fuck great (laughs) thanks for contributing to our fund you know like (laughs) and then he just sits behind her and leers yeah it's horrible. Very American psycho. Very. Now, I know we spent a lot of time on these two plot lines, but please understand, these are the two plot lines people talk about the most. We might yep. spend as much talking about the British Prime Minister one Jesus when we get Christ. there. Because that's, that's kind of the third leg of this movie. Oh, yeah. I need to state for the record right now, this movie does not have any legs. It's standing on dicks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is accurate. That is dicks. wildly accurate. It's just accurate. a three-dicked <laughs> stool (laughs) it's all these egos flagellating and everybody else has to serve it make it feel better fix it patriarchy he realizes his true feeling towards her after an uncomfortable silence mark blurts out that he is cold out of self-preservation on christmas eve juliet answers the doorbell to find mark carrying a boom box playing a christmas song and large cue cards on which he shows her he loves her unconditionally as he walks away juliet runs after him gives him a quick kiss and returns inside that is maybe 100 percent the worst thing other than the 9-11 thing i don't know there's a lot of bad things <laughs> here. But the fact that she runs up and kisses him i'm like no she's afraid of him at this point she has to be right. afraid of him the whole fucking thing yeah if you want to know the real life application <sighs> of this kira and Knightley was giving an interview a couple years ago and she was talking about how she was stuck in traffic and a guy who was in a car next to her started holding up the cue cards with the exact thing <laughs> actually and she was like afraid dude 
dude. Because <laughs> think about that for a I'm second. I'm thinking like, about that. A, it's creepy to have that. It also means he was prepared for that. So either he was so mentally unfit that like he followed her and then got an opportunity to do that. Or he was so mentally unfit that he just happened to have these cue cards in the back of his car. And it was like, oh, here's an opportunity of a lifetime. And like held him up. Like right. every every angle of that is creepy. And I don't see how you can like take that from the movie and not be creepy with it. And yet this movie tries to make it seem twee. And even Andrew Lincoln in interviews was like, yeah, I almost didn't do the movie because uh, the guy seemed like a stalker. And I, yep. I get it from his perspective in that like, dude, a paycheck's a paycheck. In, in a sense, like nobody knew who Andrew Lincoln was at the time. I'm not excusing it either, dude. Like if you feel like maybe you shouldn't play a stalker, maybe don't play a stalker. I don't know. Right. I mean, does he have any other big movies besides that? I really couldn't tell you. That's what I'm saying, bro. I think that movie and The Walking Dead are like his big shit, right? So he definitely probably had to take that movie. I mean, Liam Neeson's on there. Colin Firth, Hugh Grant. There's there's a lot of big names on there. I mean, if you're going to try to get your foot in the door, I, I mean, get it. Just don't walk backwards and be like, oh, it was so terrible. I had to do this movie. It's like, no, dude, that was a big break for you. <laughs> like, you I literally would have been like, uh, this was a paycheck. I'm sorry. It was 2003. Yeah. You just apologize. <laughs> you don't try and make it like, well, I was hesitant. It was 2003. You were not hesitant. You were like, yeah, I'm signing up for this. Right. You don't want to James Franco this situation. And if I may, if we take like the stalkery aspect out of that for just a hot sec and look at what's actually happening, the mechanics of this (laughs) on its face, this motherfucker is attempting to steal his best friend's wife. And he just stood up for this man as his best man at his wedding, where he is just openly leching all over the place and taking weird videos for his private consumption. And this is all supposed to be like, okay, mechanics for us. We're just supposed to be like, that's fine. It's a little uncomfortable how he's doing this. But overall, the basic mechanics of this are okay with me. Fuck that. What sort of Christmas movie? What? I have so many issues with this. So many issues of this because the movie doesn't address that as problematic. It's just like, it's just love. He just unconditionally harbors this obsessive love for his best friend's wife that was his fiance and then before that, his girlfriend this whole time. And instead of communicating, instead of seeking professional help via therapy, instead of fucking writing it in his diary, this is the choice he fucking makes. Fuck you, dude. Fuck all about you. And what a shit setup. Oh, it's carolers. I'm sorry. Carolers are here. I'm finding some small bills. I'm getting my cup of nog. I'm coming down to join you, babe. What a beautiful holiday thing. Carolers are here. What a fuck. What the fuck? This fucking movie. Fuck. <laughs> fuck, actually. Fuck actually. Yeah, fuck actually. Shit actually. I I know we're spending so much time on this, but like you bring up something that I thought in the moment and didn't think of until just now. But like the carolers show up. Now, in my experience, every time I've seen carolers, it's like families, like literally little kids there, or it's like church people. So like people who like you would probably not yell, tell them to piss off very loudly. (laughs) 
like every part of the like these three people are are mentally unfit. Like the way this movie <laughs> like, frames them. All of them. Oh. <laughs> I wrote he is a serial killer. Literally. He's the guy from you. He's yeah. literally the guy from you. There you go. There you they go. They probably based that show on this. What the fuck is this supposed to be for anybody? And you know, that guy with the cue cards in his car, we have Richard Curtis to blame for him. Let's put this squarely on the director and writer of this hot oh, yeah, yeah. holiday steaming gift bag of trash. Hot mess. <laughs> hot mess. That's whose fault this is. You didn't even bother to flesh out why this is all fucked up, but you're like, hey, this is goals. Get right. out there. I did Bridget Jones. Trust me. I got this. Oh, trust me. <laughs> I've got this baby. Come on. <laughs> all your doll hairs, which they did. Oh, he grows. Right. Money, money, money. God, fuck. Oh, oh. Yeah, I think that's what this episode should, should be called. <laughs> <laughs> so angry. Just, just angrily cursing. <laughs> Writer Jamie Colin Firth is pushed by girlfriend Sienna Gullery to attend Juliet and Peter's wedding alone as she is ill. He returns before the reception to check on her, discovering she is sleeping with his brother. Crushed, Jamie withdraws to his French cottage where he meets a Portuguese housekeeper named Rulia, who does not speak English despite not sharing a common language. They share a mutual attraction. I have a lot of notes on this. Let me know when you're ready. I just want to do the addendum to it, which is like that plot line resolves when she gets undressed to like uh, track down cringe. all of his typed out papers because which, he's why, stupidly why? sitting there. First off, like 2003, you're not using a typewriter. No, you're, you're just not. not. No, you're and, not. And then the wind catches it, puts it into the pool. So she like strips down to basically a bikini. Which, like, apparently the director had a 45-minute meeting over what color her bra should be, which is, I'll I'll just put that there. (laughs) He basically falls in quote-unquote love with her, and then she winds up kissing him before she goes back to her country. And so he shows up and suddenly knows the language. For some reason, everybody in the village is following him, and we have him do this impassioned plea that we don't understand anything he's saying, and then they fall in love as it would be predictable for a movie like this. Yeah. I, uh, this led me down a really interesting rabbit hole about Portuguese, the language. So Brazilians speak it and people of Portugal, there's European Portuguese and Brazilian Portuguese. And we are to assume she is living in France in a Portuguese sec or neighborhood where her family and apparently the whole town lives like some sort of medieval village where everybody comes out of their house anytime anything fucking happens bullshit again by othering this exotic woman they can reduce her to an object and get her to flounce around i wrote down why the swimming for the book i hope they get leeches fuck is what i wrote down what the fuck why those pages are fucked the moment they get touched by water. I'm telling What's you. What's even the point? Why is he put to a rock, your mug, a fucking get a binder, bitch. What is wrong with you? You're using a <laughs> typewriter in the year of our Lord 2003. I know it's France. I actually wrote down. Wait, where did it go? It's a good one. Oh, wait, Tuscany. The Eve Evan Hansen author guy is in Tuscany. And I don't <laughs> No, It's France. He's 
also like a serial killer. Oh my God. Because he's just leching at this woman the whole fucking time. Yeah. Right. Why would this happen? I also need to go back to the first scene with him where we set up his wife cheating on him with his brother. I almost turned the fucking movie right off. Oh, (laughs) almost because he says to his gorgeous wife that this bitch is lucky, gifted to have in his bed. She is sick. He cannot be bothered. Oh, he's an author. Oh, he's an artist. Look at how bohemian he is. And he says to her, you look disgusting. Uses the word disgusting to his sick wife. I hope she fucks every brother you've ever looked at in your fucking life, asshole, in front of you. (laughs) And then sends you a video on your fucking typewriter you motherfucker <laughs> with, with extreme close-ups away. extreme close-ups of her face the entire time and then he runs away <laughs> absent-mindedly and we're of course not shocked when he is finds her having an affair with his brother and that's it that's what throws him over the edge and sends him to france to retreat right poor him for him. Thank you. His author's den. And then he finds this other woman. That doesn't even speak fix English. <laughs> fix. <laughs> this woman seems like she's going places. When he goes back to the village, she has got a new job. She seems like she's moving up in the world. Things seem to be going good for her. Everybody knows her. Fuck, she's making tips now. Fuck, 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 fuck. Anything else on this scene? We all hate Uncle Jimmy. Somebody remarks that I think it's as one of the kids when Jimmy's around. Oh, we hate you, Uncle Jimmy. Oh, yeah. It's when he drops off the, the gifts and he decides he's going to leave at a moment's notice to go find the woman. Oh, we hate you, mm. Uncle Jimmy. We all hate Uncle Jimmy. <laughs> I hey. do kind of like that because I hated him, too. <laughs> he sucks. Asshole. Jamie returns to England, realizes he's in love with Arela, begins learning Portuguese. He returns to France to find her, ends up walking through town with her father and sister, gathering additional people as they walk to her waitressing job. (laughs) In basic Portuguese, he declares his love for her and proposes. She says yes in broken English as the crowd erupts in applause. I don't think that would happen anywhere. I don't think the whole town would be like, oh, let's all just walk out and stop. Oh, no, let's all stop what we're doing. Maybe there's something we don't know that got cut. Like, maybe there is a stigmata scene, so they're all very concerned about (laughs) it. Oh, my God. Uh, Well, you know, let's go all the way with the exoticism here and really punch it hard. She's different than him their love can survive oh (laughs) well it's fascinating too like he's got this sudden will to live that sends him to language school and he's gonna learn her language and it doesn't seem to be making any real plans and spur of the moment on christmas he's gonna go barge in on her you know it's kind of like what is anyone doing in this movie and how is he not trying to like figure out why she cheated on him he's not even like coping with that he's just like ah i better fuck this 
Portuguese lady. Let me, or even try writing her a letter. Hey, right. I, you could find her address. You know, the French lady that hooked it up. You know, you could, anything, a call. Okay. Maybe he did type out a letter and it wound up in the lake. I don't oh, know. Oh, good one. And then he had no one, he had no one to get naked and get in it. That's Thank why he was you. like, let it go, let it go. It's fine. Just let it go. God, a 45 minute meeting about underwear color shows you shows you where our aesthetic decisions like where we put all of our energy in the casual nudity that they managed to weave throughout this film oh my god artless artless sexless stayed like pasty boiled british nudity Harry Allen Rickman is <laughs> the managing director of a design agency, Mia Heike Makach, and his new secretary. He is happily married to Karen Emma Thompson, a stay-at-home mother. Mia behaves overtly sexual with him at uh, the office, asking him for Christmas presents at the company Christmas party held at Mark's Gallery. They dance closely. While Christmas shopping, Harry calls Mia asking what she wants for Christmas and is almost caught by his wife purchasing an expensive necklace from the jewelry department thanks to the salesman Rufus. Later on, Karen finds it in Harry's coat pocket, assuming it is for her, opening a similarly shaped box for her under the tree. On Christmas Eve, she is heartbroken to find it is a Joni Mitchell CD. Realizing he bought the necklace for someone else confronting Harry, she asks, what he would do if he were her. She feels he has made a mockery of their marriage and of her. Wow, that was fucking horrible. <laughs> Entailed in this, there's one thing that I really liked, which was Rowan Atkinson. Well, that gets called the fuck out. Oh. No, no, no. Just specifically, I loved him with the gift and like the putting all the shit in the bag. That really, really made me laugh because like Alan Rickman deserves to get caught. But also I was a Mr. Bean fan. So I kind of enjoyed him like, yeah. trying to do the accoutrement with everything. Like I kind of enjoyed that bit within it. Could I touch on Rowan Atkinson before we move away? Yes. Um. So, uh, that bit was great and it caught my attention so much when he came back later in the movie. I thought to myself, is he supposed to be some sort of magical creature or he actor was, yeah. in this world? But they cut it. Yep. <laughs> so you have these nonsensical bits and you can't get a foothold and it undermines the whole action between fucking Rickman and Atkinson that could have been a redeeming moment in the movie. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Wait, what was he supposed to do? Rowan well, he was supposed, supposed to be, to be a angel. guardian angel. Yeah. A Christmas angel. And he'd look down for Yes, and he'd <laughs> sprinkle his magic dust, governor, and then he'd right. fix it all and help us see the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> oh, Mr. Bean is Father Christmas. He's a bitch, and they cut him out like a bitch. <laughs> so that's the thing, too. If you cut the guardian angel plot, <laughs> you have to refilm that airport scene or yes, like you do take out where it's obvious that he's there remove him from the rest of the movie it's fine but yes. the fact that they have a callback to it again it like doesn't quite work it doesn't sink in it doesn't come back a third time and you're like so is this guy the slow guy that's all you can take away from both <laughs> interactions is he's just slow 
Okay, great character development. This is perfect. Wonderful cameo. This slow band. Oh my god. He's the guy they had to hire for the jewelry company. The thing with the plot of this is like it could work okay. They are showing a real thing in marriages, which is like sometimes somebody philanders and then the, the spouse has to suffer silently. Problem is that you are putting this with the Laura Linney plot we'll get in later, which like just makes Makes it so that, like, apparently, if you're not a woman in your 20s, this is just what you have to deal with. You have to deal with all the bullshit. Ring a ling a ding. Yeah, and it's like, I don't know, man. It like they could have done something with it, and yet it's still hitting it with the same sexist stick that they hit everything else with. I'll be honest. I had to put my glasses on when I saw uh, what is her name, uh, Emma Thompson, Mm -hmm. because I thought uh, she was Hillary Clinton for a second. Who's with that haircut? (laughs) That was the look. That was the look. <laughs> that and the Rachel. <laughs> oh, the Rachel. In my linear notes of this movie, they clearly want you to follow the Emma Allen this uh, storyline as the overarching arc of the film. They get the most scenes, they are involved with the most people. This is hard to say because I'm criticizing a lauded actor, but she doesn't start acting until the Christmas pageant scenes at the end of this. There is something happening with her in relationship to Alan Rickman, in relationship with this family. It doesn't fucking work. None of it fucking works. There's no chemistry anywhere. And maybe that's what we're to take away from it. She is truly trapped in this milk toast, solidly beige relationship where they're not even relating on any level. I love that term, solidly beige. That is like such a perfect way to <laughs> to put that. You are to believe that she is a cold and non-emotional woman. But she's the one getting fucked over. Hey, thank you. And Alan Rickman, we don't have to address that he is the coldest, most emotionless, fucking worst boss. Worst boss. We'll get to it when we get to the Lori Linney a plot line, but yeah. he is wildly inappropriate everywhere in this workplace. And forget this wouldn't happen in 2021. This wouldn't happen Mm -hmm. in 1970. This guy is fucking breaking every EEOC goddamn rule and policy in the book. It's gross. Yeah. I know it's another country, but oh my God. And so you have this thing happening where they're like bouncing off each other. And so nobody can get into the meat of the story, which is like, I have to care enough about them to be sad that he's maybe cheating on her. I was kind of hoping instead of Emma Thompson crying to herself in her room that she would like get a gun. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's England. They don't have guns. I would have loved like a revenge affair plot or something like give me with Liam Neeson's character because it seemed like they were setting that up at the beginning and then it just like he just drops out of her life. There's no payout to that. She's not even the focus. They give you Joni Mitchell like, oh, I'm trying (laughs) to learn to be emotional and we can all relate to Joni Mitchell, right? No, I can't relate to Joni Mitchell anymore. It's the year fucking 2003. What the fuck? Fuck. Anything anything but she they can't write her in any sort of (laughs) three-dimensional way so she's just sort of left bouncing off everybody like they're all just bouncing off each other a bunch of flagellating amoebas they shouldn't have made the stories connected i think that really fucked everything up 
hard agree. The only reason the Alan Rickman story is there is so we can realize he's connected to the story. Like, that's a horrible Christmas story to tell. Horrible. Why would you fucking tell that story? He doesn't seem to resolve this at all either, the director. Yeah, no. (laughs) It's left open-ended and we're left with Emma confronting him at the pageant with that line. (laughs) You really think he was trying to make a sequel? He was trying to set it up to make a sequel? Oh, God. This this might be the rare time where I defend a decision in this movie. I do think that is a real thing that I've seen in certain people's marriages where it's like they fucking accept that there was cheating and they move on, but the love is just kind of lost. Like, I do think he was trying to show that. I thought that in particular worked. Just once again, once you like pair it with the Laura Lenny thing, it's it's just problematic. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. David and Natalie. Karen's brother, David Hugh Grant, is the recently elected prime minister. Natalie Martine McCutcheon is a new junior member of the household staff at 10 Downing Street. During a meeting with the U.S. President <laughs> fucking Billy Bob Thornton, Fuck. they come across Natalie and the president makes some inappropriate comments to David about her. Later, David walks in on Natalie serving tea and biscuits to the president, and it appears that something untoward is happening. Natalie seems embarrassed, and the president has a sly grin on his face. At the following joint press conference, David is uncharacteristically assertive while taking a stand against the president's intimidation techniques. Feeling uncomfortable around Natalie, David has her moved to another job. However, he is spurred to action on Christmas Eve when he finds her card declaring that she is his and only his. He finds her after a door-to-door search of her street for her entire family is on their way to a multi-school Christmas play and he offers to drive them so he can talk to her. As Natalie sneaks him into the school, he runs into his heartbroken sister Karen who believes he is there for his niece and nephew as David and Natalie try to keep from being seen and watch from backstage they finally kiss everyone sees them kissing as the curtain rises i really hate and we already touched on this but the whole everybody calls her chubby thing i I I fucking hate it yeah that's uh just doesn't even make sense no it doesn't that like doesn't even make like even just from like a literal stance of like it just doesn't even make sense but even if she was chubby i still hate it it's completely unnecessary and i don't know if you noticed but they shot her in such a way the camera and and it does this with no other character the camera floats to always land on her ass or her midsection and thighs always she'll be leaving a room and the camera does this very subtle very cheeky little float down and we see her as they describe them thunder thighs thighs like tree trunks her gigantic ass none of which is true and even if it were who the fuck cares she works there none of this is germane to the conversation and i'm glad you brought this up too because i think we touched on it in our rear window episode but we don't 
talk about the male gaze a lot on this show and we, oh. probably, <laughs> we definitely should because it's a thing oh, and I'll kind of call it out as I see like little segments sometimes but yeah the male gaze is super hard in this movie um, it's always bad but it's particularly bad here and in that example like you said like it's awful it's awful it's so obvious that it's a, a guy director and writer and everything in this movie because yeah. they're always framing the women in such a way like for example so you said that about you know the the, the character with the British Prime Minister, uh, like Kira Knightley, they're always making sure they show her midsection. Like they're always trying to show she's just like super skinny sprite thing, like kind of show like, oh yeah, this is like a perfect body or whatever, which I guess is why I was like thinking about that earlier because like they're making sure that you know, like the male gaze is real bad in this. It's it's not even subtle. Like if we're looking at the true Sartarian definition. Does it make sense at all? Like it's like with what's his face is a Portuguese house Housekeeper. She literally like why why does that scene happen? You know what I mean? Why like why does she have to jump in to grab the fucking paper and be all like in a sexy bikini? That you don't need that scene. He could have just dropped that shit and she would have been like, oh shit, let me pick this up for you. You know what I mean? You don't need her to like get all naked and sexy and wet. Like it's just so extra. Because women only exist to be objects or like maiden mother matron like it, I, either they're taking care of the men they're an object to please and appease the men or maybe they're a, we don't even have a wizened old crone that's what we needed here is we needed like judy dench to show up and give us <laughs> the overarching message but no, Instead we can't of Hugh even. Grant. Thank you. We can't. Oh, fuck Hugh Grant. Fuck Hugh Grant with your touching and your I'm a cocker spaniel of a man. Feel bad for me. Who the fuck? Whoa, accurate. This is this is where the male gaze. You're absolutely right. Hits so hard, and we're truly only allowed to see Natalie as this perfect creature. She is submissive to everyone she somehow is magically intuitive and psychic she calls the prime minister by his first name she says all the swears in front of him and he thinks it's charming and adorable so already there's a boundarylessness that will allow him to um emotionally what he needs to do to have some sort of character arc which is project all his bullshit all over this poor woman yeah he doesn't seem to be a good prime minister oh also. They were going hard Tony Blair, and I think yeah. they just were like, well, if we put him next to Billy Bob Thornton, both of them can just look different and sound different, and we'll know they're different. And there's the conflict. Yeah. Right. Fuck. Well, you don't need Natalie at all, too. You could take Natalie out of this whole thing, have Hugh Grant have to stand up to the big, mean American man that's trying to walk all over you again. I love how they're perpetuating that while in the beginning, like like that America's this fucking hunky-dory, bad fucking, fuck that guy, right? You hate that guy. Why make the 9-11 thing in the beginning? Because that just totally confuses it. No, but that's what they're trying to 
to say. It's such a confused message that is the message. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, my God. I, I will say to give a little bit of context to Jeremiah, at this point, when Love Actually comes out, you've got like George W. Bush basically strong arm the British into going into Iraq with us, yes. which is on the back of Clinton, A, like getting impeached, but B, like he started to strong arm a lot of European allies into like going along yep. on, on some things as well. And so I think this was just like a pushback. It's kind of a political message that like if you weren't alive at the time, it, it kind of loses its meaning a little yep. bit. But it's very much a reaction to what was happening in the last like seven or eight years in politics. And I feel like, too, they make Billy Bob Thornton this perfect Clinton Bush-esque matchup. He's got all the suave sophistication of Clinton and his verbosity, but he's just a good old Southern boy that everybody's going to trust no matter what. Pew, pew, pew. Like <laughs> uh, George Bush. I live and on a ranch. <laughs> right? I'm on a ranch. Look at me. I'm earnestly homespun and folksy. That that was the most fun thing about W. I'm just going to say this and then I'll, I'll get off of the po- political thing. But he used to like clear brush whenever there was a camera around. He would just be on the ranch and he'd put on his shit kickers and stuff. And he would just like grab brush and like move it from one spot to another so they could get that wide angle of him working on my ranch as if he didn't have like a ton of immigrant workers doing it for him you know what i mean like it it was just so performative bullshit that's your favorite bush moment can i tell you my favorite bush moment absolutely (laughs) it's the interview he has where he's like we will find al-qaeda and we will neutralize them now watch me hit this back nine and he's like fucking golfing when he's like giving some crazy speech about how fucking al-qaeda is gonna be god-fearing and like they don't believe in god because we're christian and like just all this shit and then he just he just it's like golfing during the middle of that it Ugh. is wild that like our opinion of w has gone up because of trump you know what i mean like yeah so that terrible. doesn't it, when trump was so bad in comparison you're like i i guess it could have been worse like <laughs> bush is literally a fucking war criminal and he's just sitting at home painting friends <laughs> They're all war criminals. Let me bring this back to uh, this story. We get into the meat of the Hugh Grant story at around the 45 minute mark, which is when I would have been ready to get the fuck up and walk out of the theater. (laughs) And that's when they start manipulating you with the Pointer Sisters song. Which I love that song. And I hated that it was in this movie a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) That is it. They know you love it. They know it's been a while since you heard it. They know you want to see Hugh Grant and his twitchy little behind dancing around the you know, 10 Downing Street to it. That's a good way to describe Hugh Grant. It's just a twitchy little behind. <laughs> like a cocker fucking spaniel. That was like the perfect. Like I've learned so many, so many terms in this podcast episode. Thank you so much. <laughs> you could just take fucking out of them and you can use them at virtually any, any moment. But they bring the Pointer Sisters back again to manipulate you at the end of the movie and none of this was lost on me mr curtis get it together i need somebody to help me understand why we have to objectify natalie and her weight perceived flaws in that at all in this movie and it's like in the in the reality of it too if she was like cursing and acting like that in the like a place that definitely you don't do that like she would not she would not be working there at all it's just so unrealistic and then on top (laughs) of it he's 
sleeping with her or like th that's what it's leading to like he's having a relationship with her which is wildly inappropriate too right. like every part of this is gross well and it gives you the feeling that he's going down the gauntlet meeting people and it's like are, are they all here for your use as you see fit sir like i know they go out of their way to show him being somewhat progressive i guess but it feels like it's more political than anything else and he gets butt hurt when he walks in on Billy Bob Thornton sexually harassing poor Natalie in her workplace behind a closed door, <laughs> all of which is fucking gross. And we knew at the time that Bill Clinton had fucking done. Oh, yeah, that was a little nod to that, huh? OK, that makes that makes a lot more sense. The minute we saw her on the screen, we're like, oh, she's Lewinsky-esque. I get it. This gorgeous, voluptuous, raven-haired beauty. What else could she be there for than sex? Fuck! Am I wrong in assuming, like, it's not so much that he's protecting her from being sexually no. harassed, but he likes her. It's almost like a pissing match, He's butthurt. Right? He assumes that she's inviting it from everybody. She has not invited it from him. He just is seeing it that way. This is all Hugh Grant's perception. Like, oh, she's here for me. She's flirting with me. She said, shit. She let me touch her upper arm. She wants me to bang her. Obviously, I'm going to start pining after her and projecting all my shit all over her. And then he walks in on Billy Bob Thornton, uh, sexually harassing her in her place of work and sees it as a piddle piddle competition with the U.S. president. I've heard in Great Britain, like touching an upper arm is basically like hardcore pornography. So. <laughs> he's still they don't express still, a lot of emotions. so he walks in on billy bob thornton banging her assumes she wants it you know what i'm saying like it all is yeah, based yeah. off this terrible assumption that women are just there for you are only to be seen through your view through your lens women only exist in your perception and your projection bullshit bullshit yeah complete bullshit should we move on he fired her no we can't he then has her oh that's move. right that's right he fired we can't her move that's... on we cannot move on he's such a dingleberry he then has her moved because his fifis are hurt and he is the fucking second most powerful person in that country and can do whatever the fuck he wants he has her moved somewhere else she sends him a christmas card that somehow gets opened check passed to the prime minister he reads it on christmas eve he realizes <laughs> oh she was being sexually harassed in my office and i fired her oh i better go try to do what i want and get in a relationship with her like what the fuck no call of apology no start writing a heartfelt letter of apology no get in the car and go what is it with these men not to mention he like literally just fired her because he was butthurt which is like such a big red flag oh like they should have called this movie red flag actually <laughs> facts that if you can't put those words together i'll just move right on but fuck this whole plot line is fucked up and i get it gets us to the pantomime it gets us to the christmas pageant at the end of the movie which is honestly the best acting the most charm the most mood feeling anything they were able to create throughout the whole film so okay fucking fine fine We've got a plot here with uh, Martin Freeman and another woman where basically they're stand-ins, which means they go into a position that the actors are in and they set up the lighting and the cameras. And apparently they're doing it for a Lorno, I'm guessing. 
and uh, oh, they fall in... I see what you did there. Oh, did, have you not heard that? No. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're stand-ins. They're not going to be on camera. They're just setting it up so that the actors can then come in and everything's set. They basically fall in love. There's not a lot to this plot line, but... My major problem with this one is that there's no way they're like, can you grab her breasts? (laughs) There's no way that they need to be completely topless or any of this stuff. Like, that's ridiculous. You're just setting up the lighting. Like, you don't have to be naked to do that. It's insanity. This was uh, my number one because uh, it's just literally the fucking worst. Like, oh, we're going to need you to rub her breasts. And then that's where the the line comes in. Uh, Oh, God, grid, gridlock, huh? <laughs> like, oh my fucking God. It's the most casual, useless nudity I've ever seen in a film. And the way they do it with, Mar- by the time it starts happening and Martin Freeman shows up, you are so relieved somebody good in the world has shown up because we can rely on him to be a good egg. He just always is. Then cash, weird nudity and simulated sex. Why? Why? They make him gross. Everyone's gross in this movie. Everyone's so gross. We haven't even got to the fucking, the horny British kid. Oh Oh my God. Uh, Liam Neeson's character, his wife dies. And so he is having a really hard time dealing with it. He's got a stepson that he's now living with. He's really concerned about his stepson and how he's dealing with the whole thing. It turns out his stepson's actually in love with this girl at school who's an American. He starts to talk about love with him, and then it turns out that uh, she's going to sing in this play. And so he learns drums so that because, like, musicians, like, basically get the girls is kind of his takeaway from it. And so he's, like, fasting. He's doing all this stuff just to learn how to play drums really well. He plays in the concert at, like goes off without a hitch he's really good but it doesn't work out with the girl the father drives him to the airport the kid and like basically encourages him to run through security which like in america you're just getting shot for that but uh he runs through to do the whole airport scene of i love you right um that's basically that plot line also liam neeson is talking about I'm trying to remember which model it is. He's saying like... Claudia Schiffer. Claudia Schiffer, that's right. He he has a thing for Claudia Schiffer. And then Claudia Schiffer (laughs) is playing a character who's supposed to be Claudia Schiffer-esque that he meets. And they just immediately look at each other and you know like they're going to get together based off of nothing other than just looking at each other. Because you know Claudia Schiffer would look at Liam Neeson and be like, I want some of that. I mean, maybe maybe (laughs) he's got that craggy hot sexuality. I feel... That's true. I'm thinking of Liam Neeson now, I guess. Like- <laughs> this is Liam Neeson 2003. If I may, I feel like they really muddied this plot in a negative way because we could have actually had a moment talking about love in Liam Neeson's grief over his dead wife. Yeah, that's like the would be the only pure thing. <laughs> but everybody, movie. absolutely everybody, including Emma Thompson, insist that he suck it up. She literally tells him nobody's going to shag you if you don't get she, over your fucking death. She died, bro. Yeah. Get and over we see it. And him at the funeral. <laughs> she just died. He's like devastated. <laughs> Maybe this is a British thing. Maybe they're kind of uh, like being overly sarcastic because the the Brits are known for, you know, stiff upper upper lip and all that. It's absolute insanity that he loses his wife five weeks before Christmas and then he's just like over it by the end of Christmas. Dude, that's crazy. 
uh, it's beyond me why they made that choice because in doing so they negated any sort of like positive teaching he could have given his stepson in how to actually find lasting love which i think should have been the crux of this movie and the one thing that i think is so important that they left out not to mention it's almost kind of gross what he teaches his son yeah like his stepson where it's like hey your mom died you know i guess i'll move on whatever and it's like damn that was his actual mom <laughs> you piece exactly. of shit and what i was i was trying <laughs> to say is that all of the problems in this movie all of the things that create any sort of conflict and any sort of motion happening could have been solved if we talked about it so if creepy psycho stalker had talked to his best friend maybe that wouldn't have went down that way if a freaky freak author in the cottage with the woman who only speaks portuguese had talked to the french woman and tried to get a little communication going None of this shit would have happened this way. If Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman could have had a little convo, none of this shit would have happened this way. If he could have said no to his weird sex retary, none of this would have happened. And I get then we yeah. wouldn't have a movie, but it also leaves you with this feeling. Maybe of- we shouldn't have this Exactly. Movie <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. But again, because Liam Neeson doesn't grieve and just moves on, there's no heart in this movie. Laura Linney has a crush on a guy in the office. Alan Rickman's character is telling her, you should just get together with them. Give us all a break, blah, blah, blah. So inappropriate. She's like looking at him from a distance. They wind up hooking up at a Christmas party. She thinks that she's a garbage person. I think she says something akin to that. They wind up almost hooking up in her bedroom. And then she gets a phone call that she's got to answer. And it turns out it's her mentally ill brother. And it kills the moment. And the guy just leaves. And he just leaves. And then like Laura Lenny's just like, left holding the bag brother almost hits her and then later we see her talking to her brother on the phone again it's basically just like she's never gonna find love because she's having to take care of family who's mentally ill really hate this plot line wow christmas love everyone she's never (laughs) going to have love because she's using her brother as an excuse to avoid it if you pulled out the emma thompson plot line and you focus on this one, there could be something here once again. She's got responsibilities and like it sucks because nobody wants to What about the love on. you have for your family? Right. But they don't <laughs> position it like yep. that. They position it in a way where it's like, no, she's never going to find love because like A, she's older. She's a hot mess because of her brother. So she doesn't get love. It's disgusting what they're doing with And this. she doesn't have any boundaries, which we see immediately in the conversation with Alan Rickman in the office. No, it's okay for you, boss, to talk to me about my personal life in this way and demand that I proposition a co-worker at the what the fucking actual fuck and then we see this boundarylessness continue with her like oh no I cannot not take that call during our intimate time even the Honestly, Alex, I thought that that wasn't her brother. I thought that was her uh, former intimate partner, the way they positioned (laughs) it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I didn't get familial relation. I thought, oh, this is a a husband, a a former flame, somebody she is not moving forward in her love life because of. It's her fucking brother. He can wait till tomorrow. He's just trying to throw fists at anybody who gets close enough to him. Come on, calm down. And also he's in an institution. So it's like, you could just call them up and be like, hey, can you watch him? He's like being like wild right now on the phone. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, 
I don't know. That's the point I, of I, him being in yeah. the facility. Her brother is Michael Myers. <laughs> just breaking well, out then of you the would have to worry. Then there might actually be some conflict in this fucking movie. There might actually be a fucking story. That would be fucking Shit. dope if this movie just ends and it's fucking Halloween 7. You combine Andrew Lincoln's character with that brother character and make it Michael Myers. This could be an amazing movie. So what other plot lines do we have? It's the guy that goes to get laid in America. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is super simple. I fucking hate this. Guy, they they position him (laughs) like he's ugly, which he's not. He's just like doing his chic thing like for for like the late 90s or whatever like make him look ugly even though he's not right and uh, his friend is basically like you're ugly deal with it he's like no in america i could get laid because of my accent so then he just shows up to wisconsin which like right away i'm like laughing because i'm like this is like one of the things where i laugh because i'm like like no way wisconsin like why are you going to wisconsin like you're going to the coldest part of america like this is insanity and then he goes in a bar and you just see an old guy in there and i'm like okay so they're gonna show the reality no like three <laughs> super hot girls who have another super hot girl and they basically say well you can stay at our apartment instead of getting a hotel room oh uh, we, we only have, have one bed yeah we only have one bed we have to sleep and naked, we don't have so clothes all sweaty uh yeah and and then he gets together with all of them and then they go back to great britain and he's got a friend for his friend and may i really quickly the way they work this joke is truly disgusting and we we see two of the girls right away we see them and we see they are uh one's elijah dushku right or uh no uh oh god the early 2000s hotties are elijah thank you thank you one of the elizas um uh, and so we know right away they're objectively hot and they keep talking about their friend. No, our friend's going to join us. And the friends all have these. How do I say names that may not be typically associated with hot chicks in specific they keep talking about harriet oh well you'll just have to wait till harriet gets here so genie we're waiting for the fat chick (laughs) carol we're waiting for the fat chick (laughs) shoe to drop right that's what they're setting up we're waiting for the ugly chick the fat chick we're waiting for that trope to show up right oh well when harriet gets here so we're like waiting for somebody to rain on this sex parade for this British kid. Guess who's playing Harriet? Shannon Elizabeth, hottest chick of the world. Megan Fox hadn't even shown up yet, y'all. Shannon Elizabeth was fucking it. They're using such shit manipulative tactics in this fucking movie, and it doesn't even give this story legs. You forget about it. I can't even get fully mad about this plot line because it's so flat. Technically, it's the only like non horrible plot. Oh, I mean, it is horrible, it's horrible, but it's not like, oh, my brother's mentally ill. Oh, my wife just died. Oh, I'm cheating on my wife. Oh, I'm trying to steal my best friend's girlfriend. Like, I could just keep going. Oh, I <laughs> can know? fly to America and instantly fuck four women. That's a horrible yeah. plot. Oh, yeah. Line. A horrible yeah. <laughs> plot line, objectively. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Then we got the Rowan Atkinson uh, thing where he's the jewelry salesman. That's Rufus, and, right? Yeah. Yeah. Rufus. Yeah. yeah I yeah, wish yeah. they'd left that plot in. I wish there was more of him as a guardian angel or sort of holiday angel leading the way. Right. I love Mr. Bean too, man. Well, that's why they put him in there. I enjoyed the packaging scene, though I don't think they set it up 
really well when he's packaging the gift for the secretary. Yeah. And Emma Thompson is shopping and Alan Rickman wants him to hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And he's making the longest, long, <laughs> fartiest. Yeah, literally. And it's a very <laughs> Mr. Bean. And I feel like there was something missing in that, too, that could have been better i feel like i feel like mr bean should have been the guy that was like in every story that was like oh you shouldn't do this actually you shouldn't do this way just talk to her why don't you just talk to her man and then the story is actually about love instead of like why love doesn't right. work which is almost what the movie should have been called why love <laughs> doesn't work and and yet they cut that out they had that opportunity it sounds like they fully filmed all of that stuff it also sounds like they filmed a couple other plot lines too i saw mention of a les yeah really? a, a lesbian plot line that got cut out i <laughs> and i wonder if it's weird i was actually expecting that to happen loki like somewhere in the middle i thought there was supposed to be a lesbian plot line and i was like oh okay i guess i guess, I guess we're not doing that well, it sounds like they wrote other stuff, and I don't know. Maybe it would have just confused it more, made it more muddy. Man, it probably would have ended horribly. Well, it, it, I don't honestly. know if it could have ended any more horribly. It's, atro <laughs> right? it's atrocious. I was just so ready for it to. That's the other thing. The fucker's two fifteen. She's a long thing. Yeah. Two hours and fifteen minutes, huh, Alex? But do we need two uh, hours and fifteen minutes of it? No. None. That's a length right. of a Bond movie. We don't need that Ooh. for this. I just watched the new Ghostbusters, and that's pretty much how long that movie was. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of movie that lends itself to longer runtime, right. though, I will say. <laughs> right. Are we done with the plot lines? Uh, we have the epilogue, and then that's it. Do you want to cover that? I mean, it basically just says everybody's in love. Everybody's <laughs> in love because they're back at the airport now. They're all physically in the airport. It's the magic of Christmas. All the stories were all connected. Ah, uh, Christmas. I'm not even going to dive into the themes in this movie. It's just, it's some kind of broken love thing for everything in this. Like, it, it really, it <laughs> that really is, is the theme, bro. Broken love thing. Like, just see everything we've talked about is basically the theme of this. So the movie behind the movie, Richard Curtis scrapped two scripts he was working on and turned one into the plot line with the prime minister, the other into a plot line where the couple can speak the same language. Curtis cast his daughter for lobster number two, but she demanded for a payment to be to meet Kiara Knightley. I did kind of like that. That's maybe the one thing I read about this okay. movie that I wasn't super mad about. That's all right. All right. <laughs> a second unit caught couples at an airport embracing, and so they would film it and then immediately run up and get them to sign waivers. And I think they were hidden cameras, so even that's a little bit creepy. Yeah. Well, that's what the ending is. That's what the ending is. It's like, oh, it's five videos that are, you know, clones throughout a long picture that makes a heart oh it's everyone hugging and loving even though the story had literally none of that mm -hmm. <laughs> okay this is gonna set off a fucking firestorm but i gotta say it so chris marshall who played that guy in the the scene where the four women fawn over him he returned his paychecks because he got 21 takes of women undressing him and so he's just like i don't need to get paid for this so he literally returned his paycheck because he was so happy with I it i uh, fucking you can't take that money and donate it to a women's shelter, my brew. You can't do something. Damn. You fucking asshole. Oh, payment enough. Oh, oh man. What a gross the ass. The thing is disgusting. <laughs>
thing. It really it's is. Like <laughs> I, um, the only like cruising online I did about it at, before watching the movie was I kind of did a Twitter search for Love Actually because it's the season, right? <laughs> and it's right. primarily Brits saying, "Oh well, it's Love Actually. I've got it on in the background while I putter around the house," and it's like that. Um, a staple holiday movie, I feel like. Um, but I can't think of another holiday movie except for Mixed Nuts that is so strange in its message. Know what I mean? That's a good call with Mixed Nuts, by the way. I, I feel like most people haven't seen that. Oh. But Mixed Nuts is it's another one that's diced up in a bunch of stories that are like depressing and weird. And but. <laughs> But also, which it has similar to this in that, like, Nora Ephron wrote it, who, like, wrote, like, When Harry Met Sally, for example, or Sleepless huh. in Seattle, uh, like, a bunch of classics. And it's just, like, this super strange movie. When she finally gets to direct a movie, she directed that. Like, it's like, <laughs> what is going on? Like, And I would say that with Richard Curtis. Like, he he was known for, like, for example, Four Weddings and a Funeral and stuff like that. And it's like, why is he making this? Like, I don't understand. Yes. Bridget Jones' Diary, I think that was the big thing. Well, he wrote that. He didn't direct it. Yeah. Yes. People probably were like, oh, it'll be like that. But with Christmas, yay. Well, and what you're saying, Alex, about them trying to rush it to hit that Christmas holiday or holiday season, viewing season, early November makes a lot of sense. But I still feel like this would have been an opportunity to just cut it more. Cut it more. Cut more. It already doesn't make sense. It's already very pastiche and like just sort of a collage of happenings. Cut it more. Cut it all the way down to an hour 20. Let's see what you get. Or maybe have like just a series of vignettes so that it's not. I I don't know. There's a lot they could have done. I think they thought they could involve the ensemble more if they had them intersect. So you could get Hugh Grant and Emma Thompson a little bit. And those honestly were the brightest moments of the fucking movie because there was something new going on. You know, like I say, Emma Thompson, when she and, and Hugh Grant catch backstage at the school before the pageant. There's real acting happening and something real happens for a minute. And you see Emma Thompson thinking about her family and what she really wants out of life. And you can see the motivation to confront her husband afterwards. And you can see Hugh Grant like, oh, I, I, this is family. I want to start a family with this woman. I can stop calling her chubby and I can start being a decent human being. Somebody might want to marry. You know, you can see it happening very rarely. Does it happen otherwise in this fucking movie? So Billy Bob Thornton apparently is afraid of antique furniture. (laughs) And so Hugh Grant, like kept pointing out pieces of antiquity that was around them as they were filming to fuck with them. And then also, and this has to be the most specific phobia I've ever heard of. He was afraid of Benjamin Disraeli's beard. And Benjamin (laughs) Disraeli had a, a, like a, a painting hung in there and so before like between takes Hugh Grant would grab the picture from the wall and like start walking it towards Billy Bob Thornton because Billy Bob Thornton is one of the oddest people I've ever heard of like he's just so fucking weird I like I, I remember there was a while where we were like Angelina Jolie is crazy because like she carries around a vial of Billy Bob Thornton's blood and, and kissed her brother and all that. And now I look at it, I'm like, it's probably just because she was married to Billy Bob Thornton and it like rubbed off on her a little bit. Yes, definitely. 
I'm honestly surprised he hasn't shown up to hang out with Kanye the way Kanye or Ye is is attracting um, misfit abusive men these days. I really thought Billy Bob uh, would want to join that crew. That's all I have for that. Uh, what are the rules of this movie? Oh, God. Don't fall in love. Love actually doesn't happen. And go ahead and bank on that idea that your friend's not going to answer the door while you're trudging through the snow with cue cards and a boombox. Like, what if he answers the door? Right? That's what. <laughs> What's that? What's that you got in your hand? Uh, uh, nothing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Be horrible to everyone. <laughs> patriarchy now. Patriarchy forever. That's the rule of this movie. Yeah, it's 2003, don't worry about me too. Well, (laughs) it's like the men aren't allowed to be vulnerable or introspective. It's all about projecting it onto usually women to work out their shit. The rule of this movie is Martin Freeman now, Martin Freeman forever. Yeah, even in that shit role with no character development, we love, we love him. He's still really good. He's charming. Yeah. Fresh. Is the title of the movie set in the movie? I think it is, right? Yes, Lauren, like, it absolutely oh, yeah. is. He threw out the quote earlier. Yes. So. And they say actually 22 times in this movie, which one of the few things I enjoyed is just like hearing them being like, actually, like it's a very funny word out of a British person's mouth. Does it end at the right moment? No, it doesn't. It should have ended in the beginning. It just should have ended in the first five minutes. I would have been cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> This movie just not existed over as a short film. I would have film. terminated this movie before it came to term. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, for sure. I would have been taking the morning after pill. Like, yeah. And if I missed that, then like whatever lengths, whatever lengths. I would have just no. <laughs> right. Or if you could somehow do a twenty-minute supercut, but I don't know. Does the story continue? I think every relationship has to fall apart realistically, right? Yeah. In a sad, long, monotone future. Who's the ACV MVP? What's the person, place, or thing you would say is the best uh, in this movie? I'm going to go with the kid just because, like, at least he, like, learned drums out yeah, of this whole thing. By the way, shouts out that guy. That dude was in Game of Thrones. I mean, he's living in a romantic comedy, but whatever. Like, little kid, I got no qualms with him. I'm going to go Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. Yeah. It's kind of weird that he forgets completely about his wife after five weeks, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think that the the Christmas pageant is the real MVP here. Oh, Ooh. true. Ooh, actually. Lobster number two is the uh, MVP. Uh, uh, yeah. And no explanation for why we have an undersea pageant theme. <laughs> I really vibe. I wanted more of that. At first, it was assaultive, the quirk, but then they brought, at least they brought the quirkiness together there. I will say for the actual play that they're doing, that is 100% what all my kids' school plays are like. They just are missing some form of logic and some form of like holding this whole thing together to make sense. They're always nonsensical and everybody just wants to show up to watch their one kid. And then you're like stuck there for another two hours and you're like, oh God. I mean, now we got to watch the prime minister kissing her. Come on, man. I just want to (laughs) go. Number one, you would know if you're standing literally right behind the curtain in the middle of the the light. The light alone. You would feel. (sighs) You would feel, hear, 
and yes. see all of that yes, happening. I know they were deeply snogging. <laughs> they made it clear. They were really making out hard. Okay, so the reception of this movie, it made $245 million worldwide off a $40 million budget, which is six times its budget. Roger Ebert. Damn. And it made most of its money worldwide. I think it was like 60 in the US, but like it was big yeah. around the world. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars. He said the movie's only flaw is also a virtue. It's jammed with characters, stories, warmth, and laughs until at times Curtis seems to be working from a checklist of obligatory. Man, that's a hard word. Obligatory. <laughs> love in situations that doesn't want to leave anything out. At 129 minutes, it feels like a gourmet meal that turns into a hot dog eating contest. And then this one I'm a little more on board with. Uh, A.O. Scott for the New York Times panned it. It is disturbing to see Emma Thompson's range and subtly so shamed and trashed. (laughs) To see Laura Linney's intelligence similarly abused as a lonely, frustrated do-gooder. The fate of the character suggests that women who are not young, pert secretaries, or household workers have no real hope of sexual fulfillment and can only find a compromised, damaged form of love. You said it right there. It's not a wonder that this was not loved by the critics, but it's weird that Roger Ebert went all in on this, but I don't know. He's getting closer to dying, I guess. Well, <laughs> I don't honestly, know. he loves the schmaltzy stuff. He really does. He, yeah, yeah, you're right. This isn't even good, Nostalgia though. and schmaltz. Like... He, just, he gets swept away and started. But he even said it. He loved all the hot chicks. I mean, that was the subtext. Yeah, you're right, right. I mean, he did work on a Roger Corman movie. So <laughs> there you <laughs> uh, influences so a copy of rear window is in the apartment when the wedding video is being watched so they are giving a nod to that movie also the close-ups in a montage was a nod to the movie cinema paradiso where kissing scenes were removed uh. by censors that were all shown together and then uh, of course robert palmer's video for addicted to love is totally what that christmas video is and they were doing it i wanted to see that whole video it was high quality and could have been a high point of this film, honestly. That's got to be a DVD extra, I right? I would hope so. I think there is a, a whole ass music video. I saw something of it on YouTube, but I didn't click on it. So what it influenced, I'm going to do specifically movies that basically remade Love Actually around the world. So there's Love Is All, which was in 2007. It's a Dutch movie. Salute to Love, also 2007. It's an Indian movie. Letters to Santa, a 2011 Polish movie. It All Began When I Met You, 2013 Japanese movie. And New Year's Trees, a 2010 Russian movie, which then spawned six sequels. Six Six sequels in a 11 years that's insane so this movie really really loved around the world (laughs) just not on this podcast sorry about it Legacy. <laughs> so this is insane. The soundtrack spent 348 weeks on the UK charts. So I calculated that out. That is six years and 44 days. Yep. That's nuts. And interestingly enough, there's different track listings for the UK soundtrack versus the US, specifically in whose version of Jump they use, because there's a British girl group they use at the end, and then they use the Pointer Sisters in the film. So I thought that was an interesting point. That is interesting. Of course, it became a staple on Christmas programming on cable channels. And then British prime ministers are constantly trying to live up to to Hugh Grant's character in this movie. Tony Blair 
Claire said in 2005, I know there's a bit of us that would love for me to do a Hugh Grant and Love Actually and tell America where to get off. But the difference in a good film and real life is that in real life, there's the next day, the next year, the next lifetime to contemplate the ruinous consequences of easy applause. Then when Gordon Brown shifted his cabinet to a frostier position with the U.S., the British press called it his Love Actual moment. David Cameron threw shade on Russia, saying that they were an insignificant country. He also drew the comparison from the press. So this is like kind of a touch point for the Brits. That's so ridiculous that that's a thing for them. But I would also love to see like if the prime minister would have been like, fuck off, Trump. Or like, oh, he had his love actually moment. You say that's <laughs> ridiculous, but I would point out that Americans constantly compare presidents to Bill Pullman and Independence Day. So, you know. <laughs> also, I would like to just point out to Tony Blair that the difference between a good movie and love actually is everything. <laughs> <laughs> So when you say Love Actually is a good movie, I already know you're lying, sir. You're a liar and a cheat. <laughs> right. That's a big red flag. <laughs> that you want to watch. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so other source material. There actually is a sequel to this. Yes. Uh, it's called Red Nose Day Actually. Yep. Director and writer Richard Curtis made this as an hour-long TV movie to raise money for Red Nose Day. Much of the cast returned in a story that was set 13 years later. I'm not going to go through all the plot beats but they're all insane <laughs> um and then they added an extra scene for america where they have laura lenny apparently gets with some character that patrick dempsey is playing they make it seem like it's going to be her brother calling up and it turns out to be her it's husband. dr mcsteamy because that would have been perfect timing for patrick dempsey right <laughs> god i think they're so. just chilling. i'm not 100 percent sure who patrick dempsey is because i keep thinking patrick duffy in my shots head out, and uh, shots right. out grays yeah. now Anatomy. So, oh, but, okay. Yeah, okay. that's what I'm saying. Would the, uh, they're just trying to get that's money. like it's perfect money. time. <laughs> money, give us your holiday. Mu- I mean, I guess it's going to charity here. And Laura Linney gets fucked, which is good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did I sell this Blu-ray to settle medical debt? Uh, Lee and Associates <laughs> took my Blu-ray, but when they opened it, all they found was a Joni Mitchell CD. <laughs> okay, Jeremiah, you've been struggling on the Neon Genesis question. So, how does this movie remind? Jeremiah of Gremlins. Oh man, it's just a fucking mess. All right, maybe I don't know. <laughs> I don't fucking know. Someday we're gonna make this segment work. I don't know. <laughs> yes, yes, you will make it work. Uh, do you want to plug your podcast, Lauren? Yes, you can hear more of me screaming the f and yelling about my opinions on Dipper's podcast. It's me and Sarah taking a dip into all sorts of popular culture topics from here, there, and everywhere. And we can be found on your pod place i'm still how do you say it you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts and we are a gorgeous redwood sound labs production thank you dippers podcast by the way i in particular i laughed so hard at that lilith fair episode oh, like i i always love your show but that one i was just rolling on uh L- it was great L- lilith <laughs> fair is getting great response from the people so we're definitely like honing in on something here all through december we are just touching on charming topics to uh excite and delight you i don't know why i feel like everything has to rhyme in marketing my apologies (laughs) 
It's okay. You literally read my mind when you said charm. I was like, okay. and delight. And then yes. you were like, and delight. And I was like, ah, that yes, makes so sense. Check out Lilith Fair and then check out everything Dipper's podcast ever does. Thank you. I also loved hearing you guys talk about various creepy dolls oh, for the holiday season. I think that was the newest episode when we're recording yes. this. Teddy Ruxpin and Cabbage Patch Kids and all of that. Exactly. Uh, the horrifying memories of our collective youth. You know what? I was looking up Teddy Ruxpin to put up the story art for that. And I kept coming across various haunted Teddy Ruxpin dolls. <laughs> and also they're worth money. If you have a working Teddy Ruxpin, bitch, you can get money for that these days. It's an animatronic thing you were supposed to cuddle and sleep with. It's bound to be filled with really dark entities. Especially <laughs> because the batteries are always dying and it's playing cassette tapes. So they just slow down and it sounds like a fucking demon and talking. <laughs> it's not good. Mm -hmm. So A Cosmic Void was created and hosted by Alex Small and Jeremiah Perez. The theme song was written and produced by Tom Smith. Follow Jeremiah Perez on Instagram at Vex Till Death. Follow me, the show, and Redwood Sound Labs on Instagram at Redwood underscore sound underscore labs. Or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Redwood Sound Labs. You can read short reviews of every movie I watch on Letterboxd under Alex Big Small. And join us next week when we continue our holiday block with Bad Santa. Oh, <laughs> it took God! A minute to remember. <laughs> Why are are you doing this to yourselves jeremiah hell yeah it's jeremiah's <laughs> low-key low-key that's my favorite christmas movie <laughs> well i'll have to tune in and hear all about it my Podcast about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, The Real War Project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. Catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void. 